Hi, this is Matthew Libatique. I'm the cinematographer on The Prom, and you are listening to The Go Creative Show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we have Matthew Libatique ASC on the show. He's the director of photography of The Prom on Netflix, and I cannot wait to talk to Matthew and to share his interview with you guys. Of course, Follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And of course, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. We also have a brand new Patreon that's out now. You can find that at gocreativeshow.com forward slash join. And we've got a lot of fun things for our patrons there. And it's a great way to support the show and build a community around Go Creative Show. So please, please, please do check it out. I want to thank our sponsor, MZ Education for Creatives. And with that, let's dive right into our interview with Matthew Libatique, ASC, Director of Photography for The Prom. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Go Creative Show. My name is Ben Consoli, and our guest today is Matthew Libatique, the Director of Photography for Prom on Netflix. Hey, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So I just finished prom this morning, and there has honestly like never been a pairing of a better movie at a better time. This is exactly when we want to just watch something fun and good, and it puts you in a good mood. It makes you feel great, and it's extremely well done. So congratulations on such a fantastic film. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. I think the film comes at a time, you know, even before the pandemic and before the shelter in place, you know, I thought the film had uh, uh, that the quality that you're describing, you know, that it was something that people, you know, need to experience in a movie going experience because everything's so, you know, we've just been suffering through such a cynical time. Absolutely. So how do you feel when you get a script like this? I mean, what's your first reaction when you open this up, start reading it and start thinking about how you may approach it? You know, it was the this. I saw the play before the screenplay, so yeah. uh, I saw I read the screenplay, and I I had met with Ryan Murphy. Uh, he had invited me to lunch, and my agent said there was something, but I didn't know what it was, and I wasn't familiar with the prom. But um, when I had lunch with him, he said I have this project. It's called the prom, and he described it. And the most important thing he said to me was that uh, it was something that he really cared about. And if a director really cares about something, you know, and uh, they're attached to the material and they really want to do something special, that's, um, you know, it's a it's a pretty motivating factor for a cinematographer. So I saw the play in New York uh, two days in a row, the last two days of its run. And, um, you know, I was terrified, actually, <laughs> after that. I, I didn't know why how to approach it. Well, how do you, uh, you know, a play is, um, you know, there's a proscenium, you know. And um, there's a lot of things left to the imagination in terms of the set design. When you deal with cinema, you know, the camera has to, uh, the camera is the proscenium, the frame is the proscenium, and um, there's more subjectivity. Uh, and um, how to translate a musical into um, a cinematic experience, I think, um, you know, you know, some films are successful at it and some films aren't. And, uh you know, I, I I was I haven't been have never been a real musical fan, uh, to be quite honest, the, either in, on Broadway or um, in films. But uh, I sort of tried in, trying to figure that out. And Ryan too. I think Ryan, uh, you know, the screenplay actually read a lot like the play, so the screenplay didn't give a whole lot of clues on how we're going to transform it into a cinematic experience. But um, what we what we sort of realized was that we need to get a, a musical number under our belt. You know, and follow our instincts about where the camera, how the camera would move within that space, and how, you know, it would be a like a, a almost like a John Waters break into song moment, like right out of the reality of the the, the piece. It breaks into songs. Okay, let's just embrace that and then see where it goes. And then our our, our language sort of evolved as soon as we started shooting music. Do you think that you not really liking musicals had anything to do with the success of it? <laughs> no, no, I, I, you know, I started watching a lot of them and I, um, and then because I guess, because it's, it's one of those things where every, every script is, um, you have a chance of learning some, some subculture, you know, whether it's black swan and ballet or, or uh, you know, um, or a boxing film or a wrestling film, 
you know, you're learning about this subculture, this this uh, this sort of the expertise of something. And this in this case, it was the musicals, and you know, watching Gene Kelly and watching uh, um, Chicago or or um, uh, or any of the Fosse films, you know, it just it became inspirational because you could sort of call out what the cinematic moments of those films are, and then uh, it sort of it sort of inspired us uh, to be able to you know craft this this way. Well, clearly, I mean, hiring you on a job, you know, you're going to get an amazing looking film, but it is a bit of a risk to bring somebody on that isn't necessarily like doing musicals constantly. Uh, it, like it's not part of your regular workflow and it is something a little bit different for you. And I feel like that must have been something that everybody was thinking about and everybody was like, you know, he's the right guy for this even though there's not like a 20 film track record of doing this kind of stuff. It's a, it's a risk in a way. It obviously paid off. I think it's a risk, but if you found somebody who was sort of set in their ways about how to shoot a musical, I think that's even riskier because then, um, you know, Ryan Murphy is a person of bold choices who makes bold choices in everything he does, whether it be uh, in the streaming realm, the television realm or the, um, the film realm, he, you know, he makes bold choices in color. He makes bold choices in design and uh and and camera movement so i think it would have been too restrictive if he had maybe uh, went with somebody who had done three or four musicals you yeah know? Uh, and it allows the director to explore because it's i'm 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 as uh i'm a, i'm the same neophyte he is when it comes to making a musical so uh i think um and that it works to your advantage because you just you're you're hungry for knowledge when you do something you haven't done before you know, and um, and you try to define it for yourself and then ultimately try to define it for the audience. So uh, I think there's something fresh about that. What was it like working with Ryan on this film? I mean, he's just, uh, I don't know how you could, he, he's, I'll, I could say this, he can create 24 hours a day. I don't know how you do that. You know, if he was a musician, he'd probably have, uh, you know, 27 albums out already, at, at, you know, in 10 years. Because he just has this constant capacity to create, you know, um, I think that comes from him being a writer at his core. Mm. And he can sort of create a, a scene and tone within a scene or a series of scenes, even if, uh, you know, and have the power to look at a screenplay. And go, you know, this doesn't work for me and then be able to to sort of um, continue sculpting it during the execution phase, which is remarkable. So I, I enjoyed that part of it. And I enjoyed I really enjoyed the just the challenge. You know, he, he loves to move the camera. Uh, I don't know if the camera stays still much in the film. I don't think so. Uh, it's like the anti-Eda. But um, <clears throat> but the uh, that, that challenge was uh, something I, you know, I had a large cast, a uh, fantastic cast, and I also had a camera that was moving 360 degrees. So, okay, bring it. Let's see what, <laughs> let's see what I could accomplish. Yes. So all of those challenges must have, you said earlier, you were, you were terrified at first when you first saw the play and thinking, how do I translate this? Did you have any of those same nerves working with Ryan, who has such a legacy now in TV and film and uh, really does make those bold choices? You know, he, he um, not unlike or like Spike Lee, he has his own ecosystem around him. You know, he, he's had people who worked with him for uh, years and years, over 10 years. And, you know, I felt like that kid who came into uh, high school in the senior year to the school, you know, and uh, <laughs> so I just used the, you know, uh, uh, Jamie Walker, the production designer uh, and, and um, you know, our costume designer, Lou, and I, you know, everybody who had worked with him before, I just sort of took their cues. Like, how do you how do you interact with Ryan, you know, who's actually working on many other things at the same time? And um, and then you just sort of. Uh, you pick up clues from his, his former collaborators and then you just sort of you understand where not to go and where you can sort of contribute and, and have ideas uh, within the construct of what he's always trying to do it, it, to make something boldly visual. But he's always the thing is, it's a musical, but he was struggling with the reality and the cinematic quality of it. You know, the sort of connecting with Emma and Alyssa's plight in Indiana and trying to uh, juxtapose sort of Indiana and that life and um and, and the musical part of it and sort of the farcical nature of our cast coming in from New York, you know, we're liberals from Broadway. <laughs> um, but so, so it's, it's, um, you know, and I, I had a great time with him because he's so comfortable because he is such a enigmatic and sort of a, a accomplished person. You, I love how he works at ease with all the actors. I mean, we have some amazing talent on this film and, um, 
the ease in which he was able to interact between all of them, I think, um, contributed to how successful the film was in the sense that all, every relationship, whether it be Hawkins and Dee Dee or Angie and Emma, like they all sort of, uh, or more importantly, Barry and Dee Dee, and like they all had, they resonated. Um, and and that was something I, you know, that that really came through in the play and uh, more so than the, the visuals. I, I think the, the most proud, the, the proudest thing for me is that I see those relationships working out and people respond to them. Absolutely. And one of the big things about prom is that that mixture between the Broadway lifestyle and kind of the regular everyday middle America lifestyle. And I want to talk about the way that you approach that visually to blend the two because they look so different. They are so different. And I think you did a really good job of making them feel cohesive as the story went along. Um, can you talk to us a little bit more about, you know, how you kind of blended that Broadway look and that Indiana look? And maybe let's start with Indiana. How did you achieve that Indiana look by way of lenses, cameras? What was your, you know, kind of lighting and lensing philosophy for that? Well, I, I wanted to, you know, obviously there was the contrast that sort of sort of uh, embedded within the narrative of the Broadway, um, you know, our Broadway characters and their environment against where we were going to end up in Indiana. So the idea there was to try to create as much contrast at the very beginning of the film and then slowly have that smelt together uh, towards the end. And I think that, you know, uh, I was using, um, I shot with a mini LF. And we use the new lights, full frames, uh, sphericals, which uh, we started the film with in our Broadway stuff, just the cleaner sort of soft roll off and uh, the um, sharper glass. And then uh, our beginning of our Indiana scenes earlier in the screenplay, you know, I was using uh, these modified Canon lenses uh, that are called Falcons out of a place called Camtech here in North Hollywood uh, in Los Angeles. And mixing those with uh, Tribe 7 Black Wings to try to muddy up and then give some aberration. Like you'll see a performance, it's not about me in the PTA. Um, and I was using, you know, strictly those those two, the Falcons and Black Wings. They're trying to get as much, you know, aberration, trying to get flares, trying to get, you know, some imperfections within that scene to sort of, uh, you know, that was the Indiana. But then the lighting and the color and the palette brought in by that cast at that moment and for that performance was, uh, you know, it came from the previous scenes in Broadway. So then it was a balance about which performances I bring color in and the palette. And, you know, if you notice, you know, we, we start off pretty strongly in Broadway with that first performance. And then we end up, once we're in Indiana, the first performance there has zero of that color and palette, you yep. know? And so it's really about the melting of the, that palette, sort of a, it's like this, um, it's like the virus of uh, of uh, activism, <laughs> the color palette. Absolutely. And and you do, like when you're hit with Indiana for that first time, I wasn't familiar with the play at all. And I went into watching it knowing nothing about the project, which is what I like to do just because I, I want to have kind of that first reaction. And when you're hit with that Indiana scene, uh, you immediately know that this isn't what you thought it was going to be. Like you thought it was going to be this big, bright, crazy musical. And it is. But the reality that the Indiana scenes bring is what grounds this whole thing. And I, I want to talk a little bit more about those Falcon lenses, what they are, and kind of how, you know, what the makeup of them are that give you that look. So, first, you were mentioning that they're rehoused. Are they rehoused vintage cannons, or what, what are they? Rehoused? I don't know if they're rehoused necessarily. Well, they are to an extent, but they're basically old cannon still glass. Um, I actually don't even know if it's still. It's a. It's a whole. It's a. There's a lot of focal lengths. I think it was born out of maybe um, a cinema set, not the K35s, but another set of um, Canon lenses from you know probably the early 70s. Yeah. And um, early 70s and 80s. And I think uh, uh, what well, they were developed by Kayvon Alami and uh, Bradford Young for Solo. Uh, you know, Bradford was looking for a specific look and uh, Kayvon um, and his lens team started to work the, this this amount of, you know, this lens set primarily because I think that there were so many focal lengths you could make a full set of and easy to work with. So they started experimenting with coding. So the Falcons are really just something. Um, it's really I, I mean, they're really a, a lens in response to the sharpness of digital, yeah. you know. So um, there's that quality. They're they're less, um, you know, they're like the anti-master prime, 
And yeah, yeah. Um, so they're just less sharp. So, they, you know, there's a stark contrast between uh, that choice and something like a Lights Prime or a Master Prime or a Supreme. So, um, but it's, you know, it's just that, you know, we're in an age of experimentation when it comes to optics. And um, it was an early effort to try to, uh, you know, pre-Blackwing and um, just to try to, uh, you know, create yet another vibe through glass. Can you talk to me about any filtration or anything you were doing on camera that contributed to that look? Because, you know, regardless of the lens, that's still going to get, you're still going to get in so much sharpness. There had to have been something in addition that kind of gave it that, texture and that warmth i mean i I work a lot in uh, different color temperatures you know i because of uh you know the advent of leds and the sort of dominance now within what we're doing and the ability to change the cameras like change the camera's color temperature and it's uh you know i don't work at 3200 or 5600 i work at in between those uh, with the camera and then i work above and below that color temperature i choose when i'm lighting because i think that um the color of light is something that is that creates contrast as much as uh, a relationship between light and dark. So um, part of the, what you're talking about in warmth is really a um, a manipulation of color temperature and then how the camera is reading it and receiving it. Um, in regards to the optics, at times I would use <clears throat> what um, another thing we developed after Straight Out of Compton was a sort of flashing device uh, out of Campec. It's called the ColorCon. And what that is, is a tray, a filter tray that uh, has LEDs embedded in it. And what um, what uh, it does is <clears throat> the tray accommodates a filter and has the LEDs embedded around it. So what uh, I usually use is a uh, quarter or half glimmer glass, which is a diffusion mm-hmm. filter. And imagine putting that in front of the lens and then having the LED lights around all four sides sort of flash that piece of glass. Yeah. And then, again, this is another layer of technique to try to muddy up and create contrast between one world and another. Um, sometimes I use this uh, if I, I'm at a location uh, that um, doesn't let me use atmosphere, you know, and just to create some kind of uh, a little bit of softness and contamination in the low end uh, and a little lower contrast, uh, I'll use it. You know, and um, you know, a, a good case in point is all the studio stuff in uh, *Stars Born*. For example, I wasn't allowed to use smoke because it would damage all the equipment. Ah. Uh, so I used the color con instead because you know, so much of that film had atmosphere, and uh, I didn't want it to be such an egregious jump to go to these studios where it was completely clean. Um, but then in this case, it was just if something felt too clean to me, based on say maybe a day exterior, I mean a day interior, for example, I would just use I would use the color con to sort of create a little bit of more. Uh, you know, more of a um, sense of, um, I don't know, dirtiness, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I want to make sure I'm understanding the color con. So this is like a a cluster of filtration that goes right over the lens, or I I just want to be able to visualize it. Well, it's just, it's it all, it's all, um, it's all within a filter tray that goes into the map box. So what you have is a filter, which could be any filter you want to use, uh, but around that filter, within this uh, custom-made filter tray are LEDs. There's about, Uh, um, I I don't know, 48 to 64 emitters inside this tray. And they're all pixel maps. So I could actually, um, you know, I could do the entire tray and then flash the image, or I can, you know, have different parts of that tray come on and just create like this sort of flashing effect, similar to like rolling out, similar to like rolling out, um, rolling out at the end of a film roll. And you get that sort of bit of overexposure because the camera slows down. Yeah. Okay. So those the LEDs are embedded in the housing of the in the housing tray. of the tray. Oh wow. Yes. Okay. So I didn't understand that. So that so how are you controlling that? Is that something that's just like your you know, it's your wireless. gaffer? Your, okay. Uh, yeah. So our programmer controls it typically. You could there's a, there's ways to do it. Like if you rented it straight out of Camtech, you would have a controller um, that you could sort of set things are. But you know the the what is really what really makes the thing sing is that the uh, having a programmer be able to control it. You know, then you could dial in color temperature um, that's based on the color temperature of the scene, or you can contrast that color temperature. You know, say if there's a predominantly warm scene and you want to, you know, maybe create a little color contrast, then you can bleed a little bit of cool light into the shadows. 
That's crazy. I have never heard of this. What's it called again? I'm going to try to get a link so the viewers can check it out. What was it it's called? A, it's, it's ColorCon. It's, um, it's, a, it's a piece of equipment that comes out of uh, Camtech in okay. Los Angeles. All right. Yeah, you know, it, I've been doing this show for, Jesus, almost eight years now. And when I first started doing it, people were, you know, primarily shooting in 2K, 4K. And I know people still are, obviously, but it, it, there was such a reliance on post-production to develop a look back when I first started the show. And I'm seeing more and more as time goes that people like yourself are embracing like on-camera, in-camera, on-set things to make their images look as real as possible right there on set without having to rely so much on post. Do you, are you seeing that trend as well? Uh, and if so, is this, or has this just kind of been your thing for a long time? Well, uh, yes to all those things. I mean, I, you know, I, I started in film. I, I'm, I'm fortunate my career started at a time where I, I was embedding choices within the exposure of negative. That fell by the wayside or on in the early digital realm because um, what could you really do? You know, it's not like we could push or pull we couldn't do much, you know, processing was processing. And then, um, you know, what was missing is a bit of the alchemy of cinematography. Uh, some of the choices you make and how you expose something, you know, that window uh, oddly became narrower. Like, you know, when you took a piece of film, if you underexposed it two stops and you printed it up, you're going to get a certain look, vibe. And, um, you know, when you when people use the word real, uh, I always it, I chuckle to myself because what real is, is what you choose it to be within the film that you're making. It's not, you know, if you're if you're resolute in terms of what you're attempting to do, um, you create your own reality. So if I want to, you know, underexpose something and print it up, that's going to be the reality of the film if it's consistent, right? Um, and what you know now we have the color cons, old glass. There's been, you know, there's been this ongoing, long um, standing movement to try to incorporate as much old glass into um, our work. Mm. Which is what inspired the Falcons and what inspires people using K-35s. And um, that's still continuing because people do, you know, as cinematographers, we want to make choices that stick throughout that workflow because that workflow can get so muddied up. And then, you know, the, 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 the worst thing and the best thing about the digital, digital technology is how democrat, uh, demo, uh, democratizing it is. Yeah. But the worst thing, the absolute worst thing is how democratizing it is because <laughs> now you have people that, you know, it's like everybody who has an idea for a fucking song in a movie. Everybody has an idea for color at the end because they don't, they don't want to achieve it. They didn't have to think about why it exists. They just see it on the fucking screen and everybody feels like they have an opinion. I think that's a fucking tragedy. Well, I can only imagine those sorts of decisions in prom because there is such a huge reliance on color, especially in the Broadway scenes. And as Indiana changes over the course of the film, um, talk to me a little bit about your use of color in this film. And I, I'm also curious about those lights lenses, too, because I know that's part of your Broadway look. But tell me about the use of color in prom and how important it was. I mean, that's that, you know, once we zero, that was. Basically, between trying to figure out how we were going to incorporate music, you know, there's 14 numbers, I believe, in the film. That's a lot. Yeah. You know, uh, and it, it was quite daunting because it's a, you know, everything had to have both equally a, uh, a connection visually, but also um, stand apart. You know, from the moment you, I did It's Not About Me to the moment we did Zazz, I, you know, of course, the palette, there's consistency in the palette, but ultimately, you know, I, it it had to it had to have a different vibe too, so that was a struggle. But um, but to your question about color, I think you know in prep, it was about once we discovered what um, how we were going to approach. We kind of had the idea for colors. Um, Jamie had already presented mood boards that had colors like the ones that are reflected in the logo of the film that are reflected in the first part of the film, and then we see again towards the end of the film, and they were pre reprised themselves, but. Um, but then how do we contrast that? And Indiana became this sort of uh, yellow, blue, you know, high school is such an easy thing to create a palette from and color block because high schools all, most high schools are color blocks, you know, traditionally, <laughs> you know, but um, uh, we, uh, we, we basically, that's how we approach, you know, it was really a definition of how much color was coming from the light, which was Broadway, and then how much color was existing in the set, which was Indiana. 
And that's sort of, and then when those melted together in the final prom, I think is where the film becomes successful from a visual arc standpoint. I'm glad you brought up Zaz because that that was one of the most interesting uh, sequences to me as I was watching it because I think you guys did in a really good job of bringing in that Broadway flair but not having it be too much because it takes place in just a home. It's like how how much how crazy can you go and still have it feel realistic? I feel like you certainly towed that line throughout the whole film, but there's something about that one scene that really resonated with me on just how expert it was blending Broadway and this Indiana look. Um, curious from your perspective, I mean, were there any challenges to that scene? What it, it seems deceptively easy that I'm curious if it was more challenging than it may look. No, I think you. I think your instinct is correct. That was probably the hardest one. Really? You know, everything else was more presentational. These are two people that are alone together. And now I, even in the play, it felt that way. Because everything else was proscenium based, you know. Even it's not about me when they come into the PTA meeting. It's proscenium based, you know. There's coverage there that's cinematic, but it's like you know, we're talking to an audience. There's actually an audience there, yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Everything that happened in Broadway was ultimately an audience. Even when they're performing at Sardi's, there's a bit of an audience there, you know. And um, getting to uh, Indiana, like that, to me, Zaz was the place where it really I had to, you know, do I go. Uh, how theatrical do we go? That was kind of the um, the struggle. And but the, I have to say, and the great thing about working with Ryan is that once you get his vibe, he uh, embraces the most outlandish things. You know, when I when we put the spotlight in the window, <laughs> you know, and he was just, I love that. And then he was working the performance to exploit that. You know, and you know, in the in the uh, and then you're just sort of channeling Fosse. You know, the ideas behind them. Uh, his great films, whether it be Cabaret or um, more importantly, all that jazz, you know, I mean, it's like uh, one of my favorite directors. So I think um, that one, I just, you know, we were just sort of uh, embracing um, the theatricality there where I was struggling whether or not it would, uh, you know, it would, would it be too anachronistic to go that way? And I, I feel like uh, ultimately it needed it. Let's take a moment and talk about education for creatives. And there has never been a better time or a better place to get that education for creatives. And it's all there at mz.com, mzed.com. Now, MZ, on MZ, there are hundreds of hours of video-based, really high-quality filmmaking education. We're talking about education in, in topics like directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. In fact, one of their newer courses is the Art and Technique of Film Editing with Tom Cross, ACE. He is an Oscar-winning film editor who actually edited La La Land. So when we're talking about like A-list educators, talking about all sorts of topics that you need to know. Now, this is the perfect time to hone your creative abilities and get better at your craft. And on MZ, it's the perfect place to do it. Now, let me talk about their educators. Vincent LaFerre, Shane Hurlbert, Philip Bloom, the ARI Academy is on educators. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we talked about Tom Cross, of course, editor of La La Land, but there's so much more there. And yes, you can buy individual courses and that's fine. But the best thing to do, honestly, is to become an MZ Pro member. Because when you have that subscription membership, you have access to their library of education. You can just blow through these as quickly or as slowly as you want, really dive into a whole bunch of different topics. Like if you, you know, when you buy individual ones, it's the one that you're, of course, most interested in and you're going to, you know, get focus a lot of time on that and learn and learn and learn. But sometimes th there may be things that you didn't even think you wanted to learn more about, but because you have that membership, you are exploring different areas that you may otherwise not have explored. So there's there's just so much benefit to becoming an MZ Pro member, and that's why I am, and I absolutely love what they have to offer. So, so it's all there at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D, education for creatives. Another scene that I thought had real incredible restraint was Love Thy Neighbor in the mall. Now, you, you got two big scenes in the mall. Um, Love Thy Neighbor is is larger definitely but you 
you held back. Like you, you guys didn't rely on bringing in these Broadway lighting wild tricks into that scene. You let it just be a mall and let it just be dancing and singing. And I think there's just such an honesty to that scene that really resonated with me. And I think, uh, made me look more at the camera movement than anything else and how you're capturing all of these things. Can you talk to us about that scene a little bit more and what perhaps may have been some of the challenges you faced? Well, that scene, I mean, it was, the challenge was, it was a real mall, you know, and they were oh, open. really? <laughs> oh, wow. You know, okay, so no, the virtualize, uh, excuse me, can you move over here? Um, that was the chief challenge. And we didn't, there was very, it was very limited what we could do, actually, you know. Um, that would be, um, and we sort of, so we had to kind of embrace what it was, but I think it relates more because he's communicating to those kids. I think it resonated more because those kids needed to sort of, uh, they stood outside the world of Broadway. So I think that was a good choice, but mostly it was just logistical. It was logistically difficult to try to incorporate uh, color. I mean, we try to hint at it uh, within the lighting inside the fountain, for yeah. example, but, but, uh, but that it was a, I mean, that's, you know, just in terms of space, it was the biggest performance ultimately between that and the final prom. I mean, just the amount of expanse, you know, if you, Andrew Rollins starts on an escalator, <laughs> ends up in the middle of a fountain. So, you know, it was a tall order while moving, you know, while moving patrons around trying to make sure they're not in the shot. Well, when you think about that scene and perhaps other scenes in the film too, camera movement plays such a huge role in a film like, well, in all films, but particularly this, because you, even though there's a lot of people moving around, there's a lot of dancing going on. You can't just have a camera sit there and and watch them the way you would if you were in a show uh, or in the theater. You have to give it some life, but it has to complement what's going on in front of the lens. Um, can you talk to us about maybe some of the strategies you, you used or the lessons you learned working with these big, huge, giant scenes and needing to incorporate camera movement? Well, I mean, camera movement was... Uh it was a um, kind of a mandate from Ryan. You know, he loves camera. If you look at his work, he moves the camera quite a bit. And um, it's just part of how he tells stories. So I, this is, it's a good segue because I wanted to credit uh, uh, Casey, our, uh, our um, choreographer. Because ultimately it's like, you know, this is a person who was able to take the choreography from the play, translate it into something. Uh, for a film and then have to do another layer once we got the camera going so that there would be counters and people showing up in frame and exiting frame. And, um, you know, the, the quickness to which he was able to adjust his dancers and even our cast was so remarkable. You know, so we had the, you know, uh, we just had the, the, the flexibility to still create rather than be, um, you know, tied to these are the angles we're going to do. And let's, let's just make sure you're choreographed for these angles. No, Casey was around and um, the choreography team was around to be able to adjust based on where we wanted to put the camera, which is great for me because when you're working in a scenario like a mall where, okay, oh, wow, we, the light is coming through the cross right now. It's like we want to put the camera here. <clears throat> they would be able to, okay, God, everybody take three steps forward. You know what I mean? And, it was, yeah. and we were able to move in every, in every scenario. We were able to move. Um, a large number of people dancing uh, to get the best possible shot. So, and so it really isn't like, uh, you know, I had this experience with um, Black Swan where Darren and I would choreograph things and how important the choreographer was to understand, like, you know, not stepping on the thing they created, but yeah, accommodating the camera, you know, um, I think is, uh, well, you know, it's one of those things that I, I always marvel at that they could, they could, you know, turn on a dime. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they did the same thing when they come barreling out of the uh, the theater uh, on their way to Sardi. Same thing. It's like, you know what? The camera's going to be, I need you guys to be closer. It's a very wide lens. And, okay, everybody, <laughs> you know, and uh, it's pretty cool. Did you have to make any concessions or compromises in your lighting or camera choices for the fact that you did have to be wide for so much of this in order to see the dancers, to see the numbers and to understand like the scale of the scenes? That's a good question. Yes. I mean, I, I had done about three or four straight anamorphic films, <laughs> you know, which I love. Uh, but, you know, I was I was tiring of them. I was tiring of the, that look. And I, you know, one of the things I always I love about taking different projects is how it forces me to do something different. And so this one, because there was going to be a, a you know, ensemble cast, I knew 
I wasn't going to be working at a T2 on an anamorphic lens. You know, I need to yeah. work at sometimes I need to work at four on a spherical lens because I didn't want, you know, focus plus have to make a choice between four people in a room. So um, that sort of dictated in, 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 a, in a good way that uh, we went spherical, which brought me straight to the sort of uh, lights lenses that I had tested previously with um, so on some uh, short form work in New York. You know, I was able to get a hold of them, and I just uh, kind of fell in love with it. It was like it's they they. I remember when the um, Sumaluxes first came out, I was just like, wow, these these are you know, I love these. Plus, it has a nice little like red Leica tag on the side of them, um, <laughs> and in a font they won't tell me the name of. Um, but the uh, but the lights lenses like it just it, it they really um, hit me, you know, and I think they're like such a workhorse lens, and they. They didn't have the qualities that I don't like about really sharp lenses, but they had um, the qualities that don't make them, you know, the vintage glass. So I'm, if I could, if I had to choose one set of lenses to shoot, you know, ten consecutive films with, probably these. Right. Well, you don't seem like the type of guy that uses the same gear set from film to film, anyway. <laughs> it seems like you like to change it up. No. No, I, you know, I think everything's custom made. You know. Everything's custom made. Everything has a different ask, and you're working with a different person. You know, one person can love, uh, the, you know, a, a, a giant flare coming through uh, a frame, and the next person be like, "Why is that there?" <laughs> you know, and, and I, I can name names, but I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> um, prom, like many projects, had a shutdown period during COVID. Um, yeah, talk to me about that experience and kind of like how how did you use that time when you're waiting for i think would you have like four days or five days left before the film was over that you had to shut down about three or four yeah oh my god it's so close i mean we did the right thing i think they did the right thing by shutting down because it was really i mean that we all remember that day we all recount the same events you know we had the um uh the european uh flight uh, ban, and then we had the NBA shutting down. We had yep. Tom Hanks, and then you know, at the end of the day, it was like that's enough for me. <laughs> Everybody was, you know, how do you guys feel about this? And we sh- we shouldn't go back to work. I don't care if there's three more days left, you know. Yeah. Um, but it, it's you know, it's funny. It's it's it allowed the edit to happen. It allowed um, Ryan to you know really soak in the cut. As it stood, we had one more musical number to finish, which was um, just not just breathe. It was um, I'll dance with you at the very beginning of the film with Alyssa and Emma. Like it really, it, it really gave us a chance to understand exactly what we needed to do to make the film, mm. uh, finish the film. So, anytime you have a hiatus, you know this one was just you know, it's it's uh, indescribable, <laughs> you know what happened, but. Um, you know, we we they used the time wisely, and um, you know, I have to say, the folks at Netflix did a great job in terms of doing all the work to try to create protocols that get us back going again to finish the film, not only for us but for everybody else. And they really led a charge for uh, COVID protocols again, you know, to have uh, filmmaking continue. Do you think that pause? Do you think the movie was better because of that? hiatus that you took like i'm sure you would have loved to just finish it and get all the way through it but the fact that it didn't happen that way did anything change did anything get better more just did you approach the film differently when you went back for those last few days well yeah i mean if we had shot those consecutively probably a different there'd be some differences in the film right and some of those choices would have been maybe editorial but, um, you know, Ryan is one of those filmmakers, and I love this about him, is that he's able to envision his ins and outs of a scene. You know, not everybody does that remarkably. It's like, man, maybe I'll come, maybe I'll be wide here. Maybe they get a, a editorial options. Ryan's 90% of the time, he's like, he knows how he wants to enter a scene. He, wants, he knows how he wants to exit it. Mm. You know, so we concentrate on those shots. Knowing what you want, you know, having a, a, the benefit of a hiatus, it's hard to say benefit based on what it was, yeah. but um, is that you could, you know, look at the cut, see what works, and then we were a little more precise. I don't know if it made the film, you know, it makes the film better, but it makes us better as filmmakers to be understand exactly what we had to get. So um, that, that's one thing. But, you know, ultimately, 
we could have shot those four days and then the, the shutdown could happen and we would end up reshooting something because, <laughs> you know, we would have ultimately come to the same conclusion that these are the things we need and this is how we need them. Yeah. Yeah. In an interview with filmmaker, you said that you hate chaos and filmmaking is chaotic. And yeah. and that really kind of hit me too. I'm, I'm a bit of a minimalist, like in the way I like to decorate my spaces and just kind of keep things orderly and clean. And yes, filmmaking is certainly chaotic, especially at the level that you guys are working at. Um, how do you avoid that chaos on your projects? I try to communicate as many. I, I, I try to have a, you know, a, a game plan and a, a, an approach. It's like, um, I guess, you know, in sports, like I always, uh, I remember this term, like a coach will have his first, you know, 15 to 20 plays mapped out. I do the same thing. I mean, I try to have everything kind of mapped out. And then I sort of react from a creative standpoint. But if I can get marching orders to keep things efficient going forward, you know, I'm big on momentum. And um, the more prepared I am, the more creative we can get. And director and I can move the camera around and try to find the best angles and not get too tied into anything. Um, that comes from a lot of prep and homework from my part and then communication from me to my crew. And uh, I, you know, I minimize the chaos. I just minimize the chaos so that the environment around me is creative, not chaotic. So when I say I hate chaos, it's I hate the chaos of struggling through something and having to move a 300-person crew because uh, we didn't give them the right information and everything's in the shot. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I try to communicate to, from, from my gaffer to my first AC to the transportation captain. I, you know, I'm talking to everybody. It's like, this is where we're going to look. Let's not put anything there. And if, if they're, if the truck's dropping something off, let me know it's just dropping something off because I'm going to freak out if it's in the shot, Yeah, you know, yeah. and I, I just, I, I, I don't like, um, making a whole company scramble. Like I like a whole company moving in, um, and synchronicity, not that it's always, I guess synchronicity is a strong word because it's never really that, <laughs> Yeah, it's more that people understand what the, like the first 10 plays are in a day. Yeah. So like how lengthy is your pre-production process? you know, normally, or maybe there isn't a normal, but are you the type that will, you know, almost demand more pre-production because this is your process and it's ultimately better in the long run? I, you know, I uh, do the same. I have basically have a very similar process. No matter If I get three weeks, five weeks, eight weeks, 14 weeks, there's the things I have to do. Sure. I actually hate long prep, to be quite honest with you, because it, it keeps me away from rolling. Yeah, yeah. And I like to shoot. And it's the one thing I really, really love is like creating images, rolling on them, discovering stuff, and you know, and using whatever uh, skill set I've developed over the years to help a filmmaker make his film or her film. But, um, but you know, so it's really just once I understand the screenplay. So my process is really about under. First of all, if it's a new director, I need to understand who this person is. You know, if I, it's somebody I've worked with before, then it's about. Um, it's a lot easier because that process doesn't exist anymore. It's really about defining what the film's going to be. And once I understand that through, whether it's through references, through other crew, um, through some of the other collaborators, then it's about me breaking it down and communicating it, all that information to the crew in, in, in an effort to sort of uh, minimize chaos and, and create an, again, to create an environment like uh, uh, that is free to create, you know, um, I do that work, whether I have three weeks or I have uh, 10, I, I just, it has to be done. I have to break it down in my head. And if I don't have enough time to do it, then maybe that simplifies what I'm trying to attempt. You does know? that level of detail and organization in your mind, does that, it, how, how do you, how do you blend that with natural improvisation that just is going to happen on set or even just time to let scenes kind of breathe and change as you go. Do you ever struggle with that? I used to a lot, a lot before, you know, um, well, one thing going in is a cinematographer. where sometimes you have something in your mind and like maybe, uh, and this is filmmaking general because there's so many people involved. If a director stands in front of a room of 12, when people walk out of that room, 12 people are going to have 12 different interpretations about what that person said, <laughs> yeah. you know, and uh, uh, it's really about coming together about trying, trying to define it as one single vision. And, and that's something to be conscious of, really. Um, so 
that level of organization for me is so I understand everything I possibly can. I don't expect to know the film better than the director, and I don't know I expect to know the words better than the writer, and I don't expect to know the character better than the actor. But I want to understand the film better than everybody else. <laughs> you know, so I'm there to answer the questions. You know, the AD and I, the first AD and I, I collaborate with the first AD at all times because it's like my understanding creatively of the film. And his understanding of his or her understanding of the film when it comes to its organizational aspects and some of the things we have to you know fight against, whether it be time or schedule. Um, so for me, I, I, I take all that into account. I mean, it sounds boring, but that's like that's the heavy lifting you do. Uh, all that work, all that preparation, it's like building the frame of your house and the foundation. As long as the foundation and the frame are strong. You could have an open plan. You could cut it up into rooms. I don't care, but you know, creatively, I'm like, I'm ready for you. Like, if you decide that, uh, if you decide the night before that you want to flip the other way, yeah, we got you. You know, and that's what I like to prepare for. Yeah, I guess I'm preparing for anything. <laughs> well, that's good. I think, yeah, over preparation. I think, to me personally, I think preparing to that level just allows for more space on set to make changes. I don't know. I just feel like the more prepared I am, the better I'll be if things change, which sort of sounds like yeah. you're you're in the same kind of mindset with things like that. Yeah, but you want to be you want to feel comfortable. The thing that uh, when something gets put off, like I've noticed over the years, like if somebody if if somebody gets irritated about a change, it's because they weren't prepared for the change. Yeah. You know, but um, but being creative and um, look, shooting shouldn't just be about execution. Shooting the film um, should give you the capacity to be able to actually improvise. You look, I, you know, when I hear stories about, um, you know, directors who storyboard everything and everything is exact. I'm like I, I call bullshit on that, man. I mean, tell me you didn't want to pan left a little bit, you know, or you want, you know, pan right or maybe delay the move. I mean, come on, you know, uh, I've seen previews before. It doesn't doesn't sing like a real camera in a real space, so. I think you still need to have some element of improvisation and the ability to read the room and see the actors and be inspired or else I think it's, you know, you end up with a very cold product. The last thing I want to talk about with you is um, just some, when you think back on prom and how it came together, the decisions you made, I mean, everybody learns a lot from each project. And I think that's the case, whether you're working on a you know, a feature film like prom, or you're just doing like a small, you know, corporate video or whatever it may be. People are always learning lessons from their previous shoots. What did you learn from prom that, you know, maybe you'll take on to your next project? Well, I'm on my next project now. Um, <laughs> and um, there's not a whole lot about the prom that we're doing here, but I, I tell you, I, you know, it's an extension of some of the other stuff I had done. Like, I think that uh, A Star is Born was an extension of Straight Outta Compton. Um, and uh, I learned and I got better at, say, stage music, you know. Um, and uh, the problem was an extension of uh, A Star is Born in terms of um, crafting um, a light, the light in a theatrical way. On uh, It just didn't have a stage, you know, it was set in a reality. So... Um, and from then on, I mean, I think um, I circled back and I learned things on uh, Black Swan from a stage performance in a mix of color and just like um, that's going to help me in what I can get away with uh, in the future. So it's really from a technical standpoint, just light wise, it's just like, you know, I, I'll tell you what, when I come out of the problem, I'm like, there is a way. There's always a way. That's basically the attitude I have after finishing because it was like it wasn't easy, you know, dealing with it's not like we had rehearsal time for each all the 14 or 15 performances we had. You know, uh, my programmer, my gaffer, my line team, my key grip, uh, we're all improvising at the same time, trying to figure out the best way to do things. And my lighting team had to react very quickly. And I, you know, um, my programmer on this film was uh, Scott Barnes, who I've known since like we were 20. Like 24 years old, 25 years old, and um, he's you know probably one of the, the preeminent programmer in the world. And like being able to work with him and and actually, wow, improvise quickly with uh, and having my team be so um, you know so familiar with me to give me the options in a lighting rig that I could you know I could understand and just maximize. Um, 
is remarkable. And, and sort of the art of not key lighting, but yet making it feel like people are, you know, are being taken care of, I think is something I kind of pull away with it. Because I, you know, I had to accommodate a lot of movement, but I also had to take care of actors. And that's a that's a balance from a lighting standpoint. Anybody who's a cinematographer knows it's like, God damn it, this is gonna be tough. <laughs> you know, and it was, but it's a, anything's doable. There's a way. I love that. Matthew Libatik. ASC, Director of Photography for The Prom. I absolutely love this movie and been a fan of your work for such a long time and so happy that you came on Go Creative Show to talk to our audience. I really, really appreciate your time and your talents. And so regardless of where you stand on movie musicals, I personally love them. But guess what? It doesn't matter because this is just an amazing film. It looks great. Sounds great. The acting is absolutely incredible. I mean, what a cast you had to work with, Matt. It's, it's crazy. And it's right there for you right now. Prom on Netflix. And also, I wanted to just properly credit your choreographer because we only mentioned his first name. So what what is your choreographer's name? Casey Nicola. Casey Nicola. There you go. Now we did a proper credit. Matthew it might Lib- be Nishala, actually. Nishala. <laughs> so it's, you know what? We tried. That's all we have to say about it. We did our he best. He's remarkable, and, I, and he, he deserves uh, credit at every turn. As, as much credit as um, anybody else gets, uh, it, it couldn't have been done without him. To go from, he was instrumental. Casey was instrumental in creating, um, translating what they did on the uh, stage to what Ryan was trying to achieve um, on, on the screen. So... Big ups. I absolutely love it. And thank you so much for being on Go Creative Show. Thank you very much. All right. I want to thank Matthew Libatik for coming on Go Creative Show and talking about The Prom. I mean, this guy has just done so many amazing movies. Black Swan is one of my absolute favorite films. So it is just an honor for me to have Matt on the show. And I hope you guys loved it. And please let us know in the uh, comments below. And of course, the show notes on our website, anywhere that you're listening to this, let us know what you think of the show. And if you have any remaining questions, um, that's always helpful for us to see as well. I want to thank our sponsor, MZ Education for Creatives. And of course, our fantastic team here at Go Creative Show. Matt Russell, who mixes and masters and makes the show sound so good. You can find him at gainstructure.com. And Connor Crosby, who produces this whole thing. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com. Learn more about me at bencansoli.com. And of course, everything Go Creative Show is at gocreativeshow.com. You can subscribe to us there. You can find us on all social media platforms and learn more about our brand new Patreon, which we are so excited about. Thank you guys so much for listening and watching, and we will see you next week on another episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers.